0: that gazing upon the lord is something we see tonight in Ephesians chapter 2 a gazing upon the wonders of his grace that he shows us Ephesians chapter 2 we'll begin actually in verse 1 or in chapter 1 and verse 15 of chapter 1 and read to the end of chapter 2 verse 10 as our scripture reading our focus will be primarily on verse 7 of chapter 2 what, to read and to get, gain some context into the writing of the Apostle Paul as he sets the, the tone for what this letter is to be an encouragement to the church. We begin our reading at verse 15. Before that, shall we ask that to the Lord or bless us in, in our reading. Heavenly Father, we pray for your spirit that, as the apostles have spoken uh, by your spirit, inspired by you, that the seed of the gospel, which takes root in the heart, is only through the spirit, working faith within the heart, that it would grow within each of us, uh, you would cause us to be strengthened, to, to know the love of Christ that passes all understanding. Uh, Father, we ask that... Uh, We would never tire of the good news. We would never tire of gazing and gazing upon Thee, of seeing more of Your grace. Father, we ask that You would do that tonight, that You would accomplish this purpose for the sake of Your Son, for the edification of the Church, that as believers we would go encouraged, refreshed, that You would conquer sinners and that You would comfort saints by the work of Your Spirit through the Word. We ask that this evening for Jesus' sake. Amen. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Well, congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's hardly anything more impressive and captivating to us than an event that includes a grand finale a great finish, something so impressive that it it leaves us speechless, Uh, a concert hall that that ends with a glorious finale, perhaps something like the 1812 Overture that ends with 16 loud cannons and loud brass and cymbals and triumphant voices, or think of a, a sporting event in which It goes to seven games and it ends in a walk-off home run or a buzzer-beating finish. Something so impressive where, where every event or every moment now hangs in the balance of a few seconds. Or perhaps, boys and girls, this 4th of July you sat with your parents in a lawn chair and you watched a dark sky become filled with color and smoke. And you sat there glued to your seat, speechless. How amazing, how awesome this is. And when the fireworks reached their grand finale, it was impossible to look away. It was just so captivating. Well, something of a grand finale is being shown to us here in Ephesians chapter 2 in the 7th verse. Uh, the, the, the pen of the Apostle Paul is almost, as it were, exhausted of trying to, to capture the glory of what awaits the church of Jesus Christ. The language of Ephesians is language that is stretched out to its absolute limits. And the thought that Paul wants to exhaust is that Christ, that God in Christ has chosen a people by, from all eternity, and in Christ he's moving them, he's bringing them by his sovereign, glorious, and mysterious will to a, a grand finale of grace. That's what the final spectacle shows. It will be an overwhelming display and final display of his grace. I think if we ask ourselves tonight what we think of the state of this world, the state of ourselves, our own circumstances, and we just simply ask ourselves, are things getting better or are things getting worse? We would probably come to the conclusion that our world is getting darker, that the country is growing worse, that, that we're still sinners, our circumstances aren't getting better. But the Bible puts before us an altogether different view. That things as they currently are, as seen, are the dark sky before the fireworks, before the dazzling display. That the church of Jesus Christ is heading towards a grand finale of grace. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. God has seated us already with Christ, so that, with this intent, for this purpose, that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's decree from all eternity is that he would put on display like a theater, like a a breathtaking display, his glorious grace. That will be the focal point of the new heavens and the new earth. Paul tells us here it will be the dazzling display of immeasurable riches. We will gaze and gaze upon the limitless depths of his grace. And how rich is his grace when we have seen and understand the incredible depths of man's guilt and sin the first thing Paul shows us. The dark backdrop of of man's guilt, his his impoverished state before God, his poverty. We began our reading in verse 15 of chapter uh, 1, because the Apostle Paul begins a prayer for the church, a prayer that he doesn't finish until the end of chapter 3, and the heart of his desire for the church comes in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, And of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Paul's prayer for the church is that she would have wisdom to discern her hope, that that she would know her wealth and riches, and that she would know the power of Christ. He's not speaking, of course, of some mystic or cultic knowledge, but something that he reveals. Look back at verse 8 and 9. Paul says that he lavished his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Christ is the revelation of God's will. And in light of Christ, Paul, Paul prays that the church would know the world as it truly is. That's wisdom. That's wisdom the ability to peel back the layers of life like an onion and see them and see them as they really are, see things at the core of what it is. And in chapter 2, Paul peels back the layers for us to see the core of humanity. And verses 1 through 3 identifies the absolute guilt, helplessness, and poverty of man. Man at his core, the world as it really is apart from Christ, When we read those verses, perhaps we think to ourselves, it doesn't really comport with reality. There's nice people still in this world. There's sweet, caring, good-hearted people. Uh, The problem with the world is uh, that the world faces is divisions, its inability to get along. I remember reading a headline in an article from 2020 in the World Health Organization that, that stated that the world's lack of solidarity, not the coronavirus, is the biggest existential threat we face. That's the biggest threat, the lack of unity, the lack of the common brotherhood of humanity, the inability to put aside differences. And I think many in our world today would still say that's the biggest issue, the biggest threat, the gravest crisis, the gravest crisis of our nation, two sides completely at odds with each other and unable to be reconciled. But if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, tonight is the lack of solidarity our greatest existential threat, strikingly, and by contrast, he would say the complete opposite. Not our disunity, but our unity at the core of who we are. The problem is much deeper than the surface. If you peel back the layers of humanity, what do you see? And Paul tells us here in verses 1-3, verses through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Notice the familial language by which Paul characterizes the world. Sons of disobedience, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. They're all cut from the same cloth, as it were. The problem of the world as Paul sees it, as she shares a common resemblance in living and acting according to the flesh. Carrying out the desires contrary to that of God. And one and all they have become objects of his righteous wrath, his righteous severity, and the glory for which God created and destined this world has become a graveyard for fallen humanity. And the problem is still worse, he says, if you peel back the layer of sin, you see man's guilt and debt before God, and if you peel back man's guilt and debt, you see his death. The wages of sin are death, and if you peel back his death, you see him, the prince of the power of the air. Often when we think of our sin, we think of it purely in subjective and personal categories. Like the psalmist this morning, out of the depths I cry. Our minds are wrapped up in, in the concern we have for our personal sin. And sometimes we feel trapped by it. The weight of it overwhelms our thoughts. We're deeply concerned about it, feel helpless by it. But the letter of Ephesians wants us to broaden our perspective on sin. A perspective that, of sin that it is objective Sin as it is in the sight of God and what it means in relation to his glory. And look at this world that he's described. The devil is described as the prince of the power of the air. There's a foulness, a suffocating smog that layers over this world since the fall. That even the atmospheric language that Paul uses is to show this this tight-knit relationship that sin has with humanity. It's quite literally the air that we breathe. It exists in every nook and cranny in life, thought, word, and deed. Like if you went to a beach and, on vacation and you flew home and you're still finding sand everywhere in your house, even weeks after you've come home. This world is completely caped in sin. It's in our conversations, our work ethic, our relationships, our, our spending habits. Everything we do is tainted with sin. And the devil, the deceiver, is the instigator, the father of lies. And the world, apart from Christ, has become his family. They behave like their father as sons of disobedience, children of wrath, slaves to him in willful cooperation. No one had to hold our guns, a gun to a head, our heads to make us cooperate. But we carried out the desires of the body and the mind, living in the passions of the flesh. Our sins are not often how we speak of them as making mistakes, as messing up, or even struggling with sin. I'm struggling with this sin. If I can get a handle on this sin, then I'll be fine. Uh, we're not, as R.C. Sproul would often say, say, floating in the ocean, waiting for a divine life preserver. But we're we're sunk to the bottom of the sea. And we aren't sick people in need of medication, but dead people in need of resurrection. At the core of humanity. This is who we are. Unable, unwilling, unresponsive, uninterested, unmoved, dead. And yet Paul says the dead live. They they walk and move and and have desires and and think according to their nature. And all of them together share a, a common goal with the devil. My name, my glory. Like the Tower of Babel, mankind stood in solidarity to elevate their name, their glory to the heavens. See, sin is not first a subjective problem that, that you and I face, but an objective assault upon the glory and the majesty of God. Here Paul describes a world united in this objective. And what is God going to do about it? Why why would God allow this? And perhaps here in Ephesians we have the closest we find to an answer for why, why God allows a fall into sin. And certainly the Bible doesn't tell us, but the Bible tells us this much, that this broken, fallen mass of humanity, this junkyard, this graveyard, is going to be the, the arena in, in which God will put on full display the infinite degree of his glory through his grace. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. It's the second thing we see tonight. God's grace is immeasurable in comparison to sin. Paul says early in in verses 19-22 through that God has put on display his immeasurable power by raising Christ from the dead. By seating him above every power and ruler and authority in the heavenly places the surpassing greatness of God's power is his work in the resurrection of Christ he uses the same word he uses the superlative the highest word exceeding surpassing immeasurable and it's again if the language of the apostle has reached its limit the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe and if the superlative weren't quite enough to capture his power he adds to it according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ The supreme act of God's power is raising Christ from the dead and seating him upon his throne. And it's as if Paul holds up a mirror that we might look into it as believers and say, that's the power that's at work within you who believe. This is is true for you. The resurrected Christ on his throne is God's demonstration of the power that is at work within you and all who believe. And if the resurrection of Christ is the supreme measure of God's power, what is the supreme measure of his grace? Our focus tonight is on his immeasurable grace. The second superlative he uses in verse 7. His supreme power is he raises the dead, but his supreme grace is that he raises the dead in sins and trespasses. Those who are totally opposed, a world that lifts its fist at him, spits upon his majesty, profanes his glory. Those are the ones he raises from the dead. Verse 4 is perhaps the most well-known verse in the Bible. It's the absolute heartbeat of the gospel. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. See, if Paul pulls back the the layers of humanity in verses 1 through 3 and shows that they are dead in their sins and trespasses at the core of who they are, rebellious and and sinful, then here in striking contrast to man's deep-seated hatred and rebellion, he shows us something at the core of who God is himself. He, in contrast, is rich in mercy, filled with great love only one attribute in the Bible that says God is rich in, and it's his mercy. Dane Ortland in his wonderful little book, Gentle and Lowly, recommends recommend that if you're looking for a new devotional book and need something to read, Gentle and Lowly is a wonderful book, and Dane Ortland points out that mercy is not something that God has or something that he becomes, because that kind of mercy has a limit to it. Rather, mercy is at the very heart of who he is, being rich in mercy. And of course, there are many other attributes of God. He is just, he is holy, omniscient, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and so on. But the Apostle Paul stresses to God's people tonight uh, that God's response to sin is his immeasurable grace. Grace, uh, great love fills his heart for sinners, and out of his great love in his heart, he Flows deep streams of mercy. Mercy of God is not simply his patience with a broken, sinful world, although that is very merciful, very gracious. His mercy is a person that he gives to a sinful world. For God so loved the world that he gave up his only begotten Son. He didn't loan him, he gave him to the world out of his supreme, immeasurable grace. And the world hated him. They crucified him. He wasn't a loan to be brought back, but a gift to the world. I notice in verse 7, the manner in which God shows his immeasurable grace, it comes clothed in kindness. His grace is shown in kindness through Christ. Jesus is his grace. Jesus is his kindness. Often when we think of the word kind, we think of somebody who compliments us, who waves to us, who smiles and says a nice thing or two. But but the biblical sense of kindness is the desire to do whatever in one's power he can do to show goodness, preventing discomfort. And the word used here in verse 7 is the same word that Jesus attributes to his own heart in Matthew 11 when he says, Come to me all who, who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy or kind, and my burden is light. See, sometimes we think in the brokenness that we feel in this world, sometimes we think to ourselves, because of what I have done, because of who I am, God shouldn't love me. And according to his justice, that's true. According to his mercy, it's not. Again, Dean Ortlund puts it this way. Maybe you've torpedoed your life with one big foolish decision. Or maybe it was thousands of little ones. And you squandered God's mercy. And you know it. Do you know what God does with those who squander his mercy? He pours out more mercy. Because he is rich in mercy. And then he says that God is rich in mercy means that the deepest regions of your deepest shame and regret are not hotel rooms in which divine mercy sometimes abides, but homes in which divine mercy lives. Our sin doesn't cause His kindness toward us to, to shrink back, but, but rather in a far richer way and more secure way, it, it causes, causes God's kindness to grow all the more, His mercy to grow. Our, our catechism would say that we increase our guilt every day, but it can also be said of God that His mercy is new every morning, that He's richer in mercy. He increases His mercies every day, like an unrestrained flood of kindness. And people of God, the more that we understand of the kindness of God, the more that we learn how, how secure, how safe we really are. His kindness is not like you, it's not like me. It has no limits, because it's who He is. He doesn't recoil from sin, but in the face of it, wondrously grows larger His grace. The Apostle Paul says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It superabounded. It surpassed sin. And how do we know this? Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He is so overwhelmingly abundantly kind that he seats you with him in a place of victory, that he shares his throne with you in Christ. While we were helpless, impoverished, set against him, God in his wisdom chose to lavish his son upon us and seat us on his very own throne where he has claimed the victory over sin and death. And all of history, Paul says, is leading to this grand finale, as it were, where God will showcase the immeasurable riches of his grace, his, his grace, so that in the coming ages, he says, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, so that his glory in the church that he gives to his son as a bride will be on full and vibrant display. And who will be the audience to such a spectacle, such a glorious and dazzling display? He's going to show her to himself wearing his glory. He's going to show her to the world, to the prince, and the the, the powers and the principalities at work in this world, the heavenly places, that the devil will know that he is defeated, that that the sin he thinks he has trapped God's people with, that he has bound them with, that his bonds are broken, and that Christ, God's people in Christ have been released. And glorious beauty. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, turn to chapter 3, and Paul says in verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's through the church that that God wondrously displays his glory. That was the... uh, the the vision in Revelation chapter 7 where John John writes that he saw a great multitude that no one could number coming from every nation and tribe and tongue and people standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white, dazzling white with palm branches in their hands crying out, salvation belongs to God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb and then he writes that one of the elders came out to ask him who are these clothed in white? where have they come? Who are these? These are the redeemed, who have come and crossed through the tribulation by the blood of the Lamb. As Christians, our fallenness, our sinfulness, our misery is not an obstacle to the beauty and the joy of heaven. Rather, it serves to heighten the spectacle, the joy, the grace that God shows His grace and kindness. Where in heaven we're not placed further from God's presence because of our sin. Rather, he draws us deeper and deeper into his own heart. To see that it the immeasurable depths of his grace shown in kindness, lavished in Christ. And we will never comprehend this in infinite degree of kindness. That's the final thing we see tonight. This, this salvation is a gift. It's an incomprehensible gift. That's the story of salvation, the plan of history. It has nothing first to do with you or with me. We were objects at one point of wrath, those upon upon whom God would show the immeasurable depths of his righteous judgment. But now by his grace we have become the the objects of mercy, those who forever enjoy the embrace of, of a heavenly father. And God decreed this, not on account of finding anything righteous in the sinner. You remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where Abraham is asking God if he would find 50 or or 40 or 20, 10 righteous in the city, that he would spare the city. Yet, Yet, what does the Bible say? That there is no one righteous, no, not even one. And look at the world that Paul describes. Everyone is an object like the rest of mankind, an object of wrath without any room to boast. And boasting comes from thinking that I'm not like the rest of mankind. I'm somehow, I'm better, I'm more impressive, I'm more intelligent, I'm wealthier, more powerful, a member of the right group. And yet God cuts across all of these to see to the core that man in himself is entirely, through and through, undeserving of anything less than his wrath. And yet it pleased God to demonstrate his righteousness by sending forth his own Son in the fullness of time. And he was without sin, without wickedness, no deceit. He was, in fact, the only one who loved God with an unsinning heart. And yet, for our sakes, God did not even spare the one, the only righteous. But he gave him up. The righteous for the unrighteous. The one who by nature was not a son of disobedience was given over for sons of disobedience. The one who by nature was not a child of wrath became the object of God's unquenchable wrath on the cross. He was made little that we might be made much of. He was made poor that we might be made rich. He was made to be sin that we might be called the righteousness of God. The cross then cuts through every division that we might see in this world. It disallows any ability to boast because it exposes the absolute solidarity that man has in opposition to God. From China to America, from the prison cell to the grocery store, from the Amazon jungle to my subdivision, man is essentially the same. And for the believer, it becomes his only reason to boast. Not for works that we have done. Not for my ability to change myself from a child of wrath into a child of mercy. Paul says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The story of salvation from beginning to end is God and his glory that he puts on display in the church. The creation of the world, its fall into sin, which required a recreative work, became the occasion for the overwhelming grace of God to surge from his heart so that the glory and the saving grace would, would be seen in far richer ways than it could ever otherwise have been seen. It's like the undaming of a flood, uh, of a river. The heart of Christ surges out in mercy and kindness to the glory of God. And that isn't that how Jesus is with sinners? Incredibly kind. He recreates, as we read in verse nine, "We're recreated by kindness, come in the flesh. And we are His workmanship. This is what God has prepared from eternity. This is we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I can't help but picture an old workbench in your basement or your garage or something like that. And the bench is filled with, with tools and broken gadgets and bicycles. And, and what the Apostle Paul is saying is that Christ is at work in you through his immeasurable kindness in your life. And where he, he sees sin, he, he pours out more kindness. Where he sees brokenness, he pours out more mercy and kindness, more grace. I think oftentimes when we pray, we have the habit of praying, you know, Lord, I'm sorry for the sin I committed yesterday. I'm sorry for this sin. I'm sorry for what I said earlier, how I acted, and I'm sorry what I did yesterday. And it's certainly a good thing to feel remorse and to confess our sins before God and to trust His promises. But perhaps we should also pray not just the subjective prayer, but the objective prayer that, that God is at work in my life. Father, thank you that as horrible as my my sin is, it's not a hindrance to your workmanship, to to you glorifying yourself through me, that the good work you began in me will be seen to completion. Thank you that you are rich in mercy, that, that I am your workmanship, not my own, that for the sake of your glory you will complete your work even in me. All of this is his gift of salvation. Not our own doing, but his and ultimately it's beyond our ability to comprehend. His kindness towards you in Christ is, is the immeasurable kindness, not only of his power in raising Christ from the dead and raising us from the dead, not only his immeasurable kindness in raising the dead in sins and trespasses, but also the immeasurable love of Christ towards us. There's three Superlatives that the Apostle Paul uses in Ephesians. We saw two of those. Boys and girls, do you know where the third one is? It's at the end of Paul's prayer in chapter 3. His great burden for the church is that she would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth, height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. That's his great prayer for the church. What a prayer for the church. That's the prayer that Faith United Reformed Church needs. That she would know the love of her Savior towards her. That's the key for unity in the church, to see our our union with Christ, to know the love of Christ in my life. And that's why this is the burden of Paul's prayer, because every problem that arises in church life can be resolved if if we dwell on this one thing, the knowledge of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And everything that the church does should flow out from that heart of Christ for sinners. And every fight and every division, everything wrong in the church traces somewhere back to a forgetting of this great love with which he loved us. We are his workmanship to the praise of his glory, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared for us to walk in. We created to imitate his love and to walk in in these good works. And Paul summarizes that by saying in chapter four, "Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Be kind, even as Christ has been kind. Where sin increases in your life, so too the measure of His kindness. And likewise, we're called to kindness; we're His workmanship to display His wisdom in the church. There's coming a day when." a great and final way against the dark backdrop of this world, the nighttime sky of this world, that God will display his kindness in Christ, an overwhelming, heart-throbbing grace in every sin that we can conceive of that that would stop us from enjoying the glory of heaven will be reversed completely, fully to display His, his grace. Every burden, every place of brokenness will be reversed in a dazzling way. And we're seated with him now. He's dragged us from a graveyard. He's loved life into us. He increases his kindness towards us every day, and, and one day we will see this great work without the eyes of faith, but with our own eyes. Breathtaking silence and unsinning heart. God has done this as the author and perfecter of our faith so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his, kind, of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus. Amen. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you have seen the fall of this world into sin and, and you have not let it run its course by itself that you have intervened by sending your only son who would come to be the propitiation for sin, who would be the sacrifice, the covering for sin, that he would be put to death that we might be made to live, and that he would be pierced that we might be healed. And Father, by his continued kindness in our lives that we have seen of his of his whispers of grace, even when we see our sin, of his uh, reminding us of his sacrifice, of his cross, uh, that we would continue to be, as you've reminded us tonight, the workmanship that you, which he is at work with in our lives, that, uh, for the display of your glory and your grace. Father, we ask that you would lead us then this week ahead of us to, to go with great confidence, to know that, that nothing can take away the, the joy that you've given us in Christ. Of knowing that we are his workmanship and not our own. Now, Father, we pray that you would go with us by your Spirit for this, for Jesus' sake. Amen.